remain standing as I read our sermon text, Hebrews 11, 8 through 12. This is the inspired word of God. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you do indeed speak to us. Thank you that your word is in the pages of Scripture, that we might hear your voice even here today. As you teach us obedience and reverence, that you show us Christ Jesus. We pray that you would do that today. Make us faithful by the power of your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Well, there's a book that came out uh, about 15 years ago or so, and, and frankly, it's one of my favorite books. And you might find it kind of funny that it would be one of my favorite books. You know, you think, well, what kind of, of deep theological, you know, treaties or, or what kind of, you know, is it like some three-volume commentary on this, that, or the other? No, it's, it's this one right here, the Jesus Storybook Bible, Okay. And, and what it is here, it's a, it's a children's Bible. It's really actually not even a children's Bible. It's more, more a, a book of Bible stories, right, for children. But what I like about it so much is the fact that each of the Bible stories that is told in it is, is told from what I think is the proper perspective. It, it's given the right context so that we might properly understand them. You see, uh, oftentimes when we uh, teach children especially, and I think even adults, uh, Bible stories, we, we see them as being one of two things, right? They're, they're stories about rules, right? The Bible's a book of rules. tells us, do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do, don't do this. And oh yeah, do this. And that's what the Bible's there for. Or sometimes, and this is a little bit better maybe, but really not, we think of it as a book of heroes, Right? You know, we've got all these great Bible heroes, heroes of the faith, and you should just be like them. Look to them and be like them, and that's what the, the Bible's all about. But actually, that's not true. And the, the introduction to this book does a really wonderful job of explaining this. It says, no, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country 
to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you see a beautiful picture And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day, but wait. Our story starts where all good stories start, right at the very beginning. And so it is that last week when we started our Advent story, we went back to the opening chapters of Genesis as they do in the Jesus Storybook Bible. I talked about how Adam was a a type or a pattern of Christ Jesus and how when we looked at Adam, we could see so very clearly how he failed in many ways and how when Jesus came as a true and better Adam, he set right all those things where Adam had gone wrong. This week we're going to look at another figure from the book of Genesis, and we'll see how Christ is the true and better Abraham. Now, now we need to understand that with types or patterns, as we were talking about uh, with Adam, that, that they don't all work exactly the same way. Adam, we looked at him and saw how he failed in all these different ways. And Jesus is the true and better Adam who, who comes along and kind of does right where Adam had done wrong. But Jesus is even better than that. We can even look at people who did things the right way and see that Jesus is truer and better than them. And that's how we see the type working with Abraham. It's interesting. We can see God works through all kinds of people. Abraham does a number of things right in this text here today. But if you know the story of Abraham, you know that's not the whole story of him, right? He, he messed up a lot and really big. He's not perfect. And so we can see some things. We can see that, that God can work through anyone in a mighty way. He can work through the best of people and the worst of people equally well. And no matter how great our sin, God's grace is greater yet and what comfort we have in that. And finally, we, we, we kind of get the whole idea from this idea of types or patterns, that whereas these patterns are always going to be imperfect, Christ Jesus, who comes ultimately, is the perfect one. And so today we look at Jesus, the true and better Abraham, and we're going to consider today how, how Abraham's faith was seen, first, in its fidelity, secondly, in his focus, and then third, and finally, in his family. And then we'll consider how each one of those is even more true in Christ Jesus, our Lord. First, his fidelity. Uh, The passage we looked at today begins in verse 8 with those two words, by faith. It's important for us to remember 
that, that Abraham, as we read earlier, was, was from the land of Ur, of the Chaldees. Joshua 24 kind of makes it more clear the context of what this means. He says uh, to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor. And they served other gods. You see, that's from which Abraham is being called. He's being called from a pagan culture, a pagan setting, and we're seeing a pivotal moment in history here in Genesis 12, which we read before. Uh, It's this moment where God begins to mark out for himself a covenant people, and he calls Abraham and separates him from this pagan culture, from this pagan people, and he sends them out to start something new. He does this by grace. There's no reason for us to believe that, that Abraham was any different than those who were in his culture. We don't have any reason to believe that he believed in the one true and living God. and He was walking faithfully with him in the midst of all these other pagans. We have no reason to believe that. More so, we believe that God called him by his grace, pulled him out of that, and sent him on his way. By faith, we see. Faith is not just a generic spirituality, right? It's not just the idea of some kind of religious thought or belief right it's used that way oftentimes people talk about people of faith and they might mean somebody who is uh, christian or jewish or hindu or buddhist or muslim or Hare krishna or uh anything right they just kind of believe anything you're a person of faith but that's not how the bible speaks of faith when the bible talks about faith it's talking about uh talking about something that is trusting in the God who is, believing in his promises and having his promises and his direction shape your life. John Owen said this, he said, where there is no call from God, there can be no faith or trust in God. So he's saying it's a response to God. John Calvin said it this way, he said, true faith then is that which hears God speaking and rests on his promise. See, since this is true, faith is always responsive. It's always always a secondary thing. It's not the primary thing. God acts and we respond. But even beyond that, we need to realize that faith itself is a gift graciously given by God to us. If you believe in God, if you trust God, in God, if you have faith in God, it's because God gave you that faith as a gift. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, right? We are saved by grace through faith, right? It's, it's not you are saved by being really smart and having faith, right? No, that's not what it says. It's not you're saved by, you know, figuring things out because you're wise through faith. No, no, it's by grace, right? By grace, God has given us faith and through that faith faith is the vehicle that god has given us through which we are saved it's kind of like if you were out at sea and you your your boat capsized and you're adrift at sea and you're you're just out there and and you can't see the shore much less get to it and you're just drifting there and you're helpless you're going to 
ultimately die, you're lost. But then somebody knows that you're out there, and so they get in their boat, and they sail out to you out of the kindness of their heart, out of the, the, the generosity of spirit, of the, their love for you, out of their, their, their care and compassion. They come to you, and they find you, and they pick you out of the water, and they put you in the boat, and they take you back to shore safely, right? You have been saved by their compassion, by their kindness, by their love, through the boat that, the, that took you back to the shore, right? That's the idea. By grace, through faith. By God's grace, he has given us this vehicle that saves us, this vehicle of faith, this trust in him through Christ Jesus. So anyway, you see, Abraham, like with all of us, didn't receive grace because of his faith, but rather had faith because of God's grace. God called him out of this pagan setting, gave him the faith to believe. And we, and we talk about faith often as something that's abstracted from how we live our life, right? Our, our faith is what we believe. We have these, these cognitive thoughts. We think that this is true. But then we live our life a certain way, totally abstracted from that. But, but that's, again, not how the Bible talks about it. A biblical faith is not just a conceptual thing, but is a, a eminently practical thing. It impacts the way we live our lives. The book of James reminds us that, that faith without works is dead, right? If your faith does not lead to something, if it does not cause you to live your life in a certain way, if, if there is not a way of life that is responsive to your faith, then it is not a true and living faith. But we see that Abraham had a living faith. And so in verse 8, it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. He obeyed. He acted in obedience. A.W. Pink says, faith and obedience can never be severed. As the sun and the light, fire and the heat. He goes on to put it succinctly. Obedience is faith's daughter. I like that. Obedience is faith's daughter. And he's saying that, that if you have faith, it will produce obedience. Right? So to to live by faith is to give obedience where it is called for. Abraham realized the creature-creation distinction, right? The create-creature-creator-creation distinction, right? He, he is, God is the, the creator. Abraham realized he was the, the creation or the creature. Right? And so, so the creature owes obedience to its creator. And so, so he responded to God's kindness by giving obedience. Fidelity is owed. And he gave that fidelity. Even though it wasn't easy, it was costly, it was hard. We see that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Do you like to have plans? Do you like to know what's going to go on? Right? I, I know most of us do. We don't like to just go do something, except we don't have any idea what's going to happen. Right? We, we kind of like to have a plan of what's going to happen. Abraham went, and he didn't know what was going to happen, but he knew he could trust God. He knew he could depend upon God. And so he did. 
This is no small thing. Uh, he was called to step into the dark, as it were. Right? It was like, like, like one of those things where you, you have that faith fall where you're you know, called to, you have to fall backwards blindly, right, and trust everybody to catch you, right? And you hope that they're bigger than you are, you know, and, right? <laughs> it takes more faith for me to do that than it does for many of you, right? Because, you know, I'm a little bit larger, right? Uh, you know, are they really going to be able to catch me? You know, so, so God promises he will catch us if we trust him, right? He calls us and he says, go, and I will be there with you. I'm reminded of a, of a song from back when I was in college, some three decades ago or so, uh, by, by an artist named Stephen Curtis Chapman. He had an album called For the Sake of the Call, and there, were, there was in the title track to the album a, a, a chorus that, that said, we will abandon it all for the sake of the call. No other reason at all but the sake of the call, wholly devoted to live and to die for the sake of the call, right? Because, because if God has called me to do something, if God has called me to go somewhere, if God has called me to a certain task, then who am I to even discuss, much less deny that I should do it, right? If he's called us, we should go. And that's how Abram was. God called him, so he went. It's interesting to note here that faith is not just a once, one-time activity and then it's done, right? It's not, it's not the kind of thing, and, you know, a lot of people talk about how, well, you know, if you want to be saved, you've got to have faith, and so, so, you know, just pray this prayer and be done with it, and like, you know, and that's it, right? And like, well, no, that's not how the Bible describes faith either. Right? Faith is a continuing thing. It, it's something that, that keeps going. Right? It's, it's an ongoing thing. We see it here. Verse 9, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. You know, it, he, he goes to live in this land, and you can understand if, when he got there, God had kind of promised him, go here, you're going to have this land, it's going to be great, flowing with milk and honey, it'll be wonderful, everything's going to be perfect, this is great, you know, or whatever, you know, I, I guess that's what, but he says, we're going to have, have this great place, and you're going to be wonderful, and this inheritance is yours, and he gets there, and he's still kind of living as a sojourner, and he doesn't really get to set down roots, and things aren't really easy still, they've got to kind of wander around, and this lasts not just for like a week or two or a year or two or a decade or two. It goes for generations, right? That's what it's talking about here when it says Isaac and, the, and, and, and Jacob. We're talking like for generations, you're going to be kind of strangers in, in a strange land still. And, and you can understand if Abraham would have thought, man, this isn't how this was supposed to work. I thought we were going to go here and things were going to be perfect. They were going to be great. But he still trusted God, right? Because he knew God was good and God was, God was true to his word that, that even though he didn't get the immediate fulfillment he was looking for, that there was still, still going to be that fulfillment. He wasn't going to waver in his faith. That's what a true and living faith looks like. 
trust God even in the midst of bad things, even in the midst of hard things. We live in a world that has many hard things, right? We just, this week, saw in Oxford, right? It's, it, you see these school shootings, they happen around the country and they're terrible. It seems a little more real when it's 25 miles down the road, doesn't it? And, and it's terrible. And, and you're left to wonder, God, why? Why? Why would this happen, God? Why would you allow this to happen? Or perhaps you've, you've had an illness or a loved one has had an illness and it's uh, even an a, a illness that could lead to death. And you've, you question God. You say, God, why? Why, if you love me, would you, would you do this? Why would you allow this to happen to me? Right? These, these are real questions. And they're, they're okay questions to have. But at the end of the day, even though God doesn't give us an answer to that question necessarily, he does promise to be with us. And he walks with us and stays with us to the very end, always. And, and in ways we, we couldn't possibly understand, he ultimately works out all things to our good and his glory. See, our problem is oftentimes we, we're focused on our circumstances in the here and now. But we need to have a different focus. And we see that in Abraham. That's the second thing we're looking at. His focus, right? The Psalms talk about this often, about how, how we can see our situation around us and, and, and grieve it and be, be even tied up in knots over it at times. How, how we can realize that it really is hard. Psalm 42, we looked at Wednesday night. It read, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And then later in the psalm, it says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? a very real response right there there's nothing sugar-coated but where does the psalm end one verse later the psalmist asks himself why are you cast down O my soul and why are you in turmoil with me hope in god for i shall again praise him my salvation and my See, instead of focusing just on the circumstances, he focuses on what he knows to be true, right? And, and he doesn't even say, say, God, I praise you now. <laughs> that, that might be a bit too far. He says, I will praise him again. Right? I, I know I'll get there, right? Right now, God, I, I, uh, I just can't. But I will get there. Because I know you are good, and I know what you have for me is a good end and a glorious end. And so, so I will trust in you. That's, a, that's what Paul does at the end of, you know, in, in Romans 8, 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that has been, or that is to be revealed to us. And this is the mindset that Abraham had. Abraham was in this hard situation, 
But verse 10 tells us that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Right? That city that Hebrews talks about, uh, it says in Hebrews 13, for, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Hebrews 12 says, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Right? This, this city that is to come is a kingdom that cannot be shaken shaken this city is the new jerusalem of course spoken of in revelation 21 and and 22 that we started our service with today it is the perfect and eternal jerusalem where we will uh, inhabit the city of god for all of eternity uh it, you know if we look to the earthly jerusalem it's a city that had been destroyed by nebuchadnezzar in 587 bc it had been uh profaned by antiochus the fourth and uh, about 165 B.C. and Pompeii in 63 B.C. And it would soon after that, after Hebrews had been written, uh, be destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. Right? This, this, this earthly Jerusalem is very shakable. Right? It had crumbled. It was crumbling. It, it would crumble again. But the new Jerusalem has foundations that will not be shaken. And this is where Abraham's focus was. He looked forward to that glorious reality that is ours. Abraham uh, believed in the Lord, and it was counted as righteousness, right? He believed in the covenant promises of God. He trusted in them fully, and he kept his focus on what had been promised as opposed to what he was experiencing. And those covenant promises like Randy said before, not just for him, but for his family as well. Right? And that's the third thing we want to look at, his family. Uh, his family that he already had, you know, that was basically Sarah was there with him. Uh, by faith, verse 11 tells us, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah, we must realize that at the time that she conceived, she's, she's 90 years old, right? This... This, this isn't something that the Bible's like, well, you know, it happened. Some, no, it, it's a, it was impossible. The authors of, the, uh, of Scripture here talk about it in a way that says that this is impossible. We realize this is impossible. This is not something that can happen, right? Saying that, that, that it just can't. And, and Abraham at the same time was, was older yet. And so, so we see that that. They believed in the promises of God. Again, not perfectly. At, at first, Sarah laughs at it. No, that's ridiculous. She knew it was impossible. But ultimately, trusted in him. Found him to be true to his promises. And therefore, verse 12 tells us, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars in heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand in the seashore. Right? And by the way, I, this is an interesting fact I thought came across that that if you look at the number of stars that there are and the number of grains of sand that there are in earth that there are actually more stars than there are grains of sand that's that's amazing to think of when you think about how many grains of sand there must be that there would be even more stars than that but see the idea of this phrase that's said here this promise that had been made to abraham wasn't to kind of come up with an exact number right it, it's it's language that is is poetic and it's meant to say essentially you will have more descendants than you could possibly count. 
they will be bountiful. This is an amazing thing because you must realize at this point, Abraham is already to a point where he had given up on having children, right? His, his wife is past the age of childbearing. He's past the age of normally being a father. He, he's not going to have any children. God says, you'll be the father of nations. And indeed, that promise comes true. And the people who were his descendants, the people of Israel, assumed themselves to be the children of Abraham. After all, they were his physical descendants. But, but something interesting happens throughout the story of the Bible. When Jesus comes along, he's, he's having an argument one day with some Jewish people. And he says in John 8 to them, or they say to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. You see, what was it Abraham did? He believed, he trusted, he had faith. He says that, that if you had faith, then you would be his children, right? He said that is the indicator of whether you are Abraham's children. It's not a matter of being a, a physical descendant, but when the Bible talks about the children of Abraham, it is talking about those who have faith, those who trust in him, right? And so that Paul says it directly in Romans 4, Abraham is the father of all who believe, right? So there's a new family constituted under Abraham, the, fa the, the family of the faithful. That's not to say that Abraham trusted God perfectly and we don't trust him perfectly but there is one of course who does and that of course is Christ Jesus right and here's where we see all of those applied to Christ Jesus first we'll, we'll go backwards through the three three points as much as this is true of Abraham right that he he constituted this new family so Jesus constitutes a new family right he he's we're not just talking about the brotherhood of man when we talk about God as our father but rather we are adopted into the family because because we put on Christ. We put on Christ. We, we are united with him, right? So that, so that like, like a, a bride is married to her groom and becomes a daughter to the groom's parents, so too we, we are united with Christ Jesus and become, uh, become the child of his father. We become children of God because of our union with Christ Jesus, because of the faith that we are given. We are adopted into the family. We become sons. Jesus is our older brother. We, we have rights of inheritance and we will reign with him. Jesus was, of course, perfectly focused, much as Abraham was, but even more perfectly. Hebrews 12 urges us, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, saying we should be focused on Jesus, he who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Right? What was he focusing on? Was he focusing on the hardships, the, the nails, the spikes ripping through his flesh, the, the cat of nine tails ripping the skin off his back, the insults being hurled at him, the the pain, the blood, the suffering, the torture. No, he did not focus on those. He focused on the joy that was set before him. He focused on the end, the goal that God had him. And he was in all things perfectly faithful. He had a fidelity that is 
absolute. It's because he was faithful in all things that he could be our sacrifice, right? It, it was his righteousness, his absolute righteousness that, that makes him able to be the, the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? For, for he became sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He, he makes that exchange with us. He changes with us. And that's why he came in the first place, right? We see verse 12 one more time, just how it says from one man, and him as good as dead, right? The miraculous birth of Isaac came. This is a season we look forward to another miraculous birth, isn't it? We look forward to a miraculous birth, one that, that could not happen. And yet, it did. And we see all the more that Abraham and his story are to point us toward Christ Jesus. As Tim Keller put it, Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Right? So when we think of, when we think of Jesus at this time of year, it can be easy to be sentimental Right? To think of Jesus, the little cute little baby with the rosy cheeks in the manger and, and uh, how, how wonderful is away in a manger. No crying he makes. Yeah, he cried. That's ridiculous, no crying he makes. Babies cry, that's what they do. Right? Silent night, holy night, all is calm. All is right. Well, I don't know that it was all calm. I, have you ever been around a baby being born? You know, it's not the most calm experience in the world. Right? kind of prefer the reality of a song like that of Andrew Peterson, whose, whose song Labor of Love speaks of that night. It says, it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyway that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable wasn't clean, and the cobblestones were cold. And little Mary, full of grace, with the tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. It was a labor of pain. It was a cold sky above. But for the girl on the ground in the dark, every beat of her beautiful heart, it was a labor of love. See, that, that's more... The reality, we, we shouldn't sanitize it so much that we lose sight of the reality. We need to remember that, that for the, the cute baby and the angels singing and the shepherds worshiping, as great as that is, we don't, I'm not saying we need to get rid of that, but we should realize that when we worship baby Jesus in the manger, he's the same Jesus that died on the cross. We've got this window right here, right? The bottom is the manger. But then right above it is the cross. But then above that, the empty tomb. Right? Because that's the end. It, it's not just Jesus dies. Jesus dies, but he rises again. And so we have new life in him. And so we look forward to the celebration of his birth. And we look forward to the resurrection that is ours even as Christ Jesus rose again from the dead. But let's not remember the cross, or let's not forget the cross in between. 
We come to this table today, and Paul tells us that when we come to this table, we proclaim the Lord's death. We need to be reminded of this. That's why the Lord gave us this meal, that we might be reminded of this, that we might hold these elements, that, that, that we might take the bread and think of his body broken for us, that we might drink the cup and be reminded of his blood spilled for us, and that in those elements, in a mysterious way, that, that he might be spiritually present for us and nourish us in and through them. It's a great and wonderful gift he's given to us, uh, but, but he's given it to us if we believe, right? If we do not believe, he's told us that we would be better off not partaking at all. And so today, if, if you don't trust in Christ Jesus, if you don't have a faith that leans on him, that depends upon him, that relies upon him, then, then I would urge you not to partake of the Lord's Supper, but, but rather to consider the gracious gift that is made available to you. But for those who do trust in him, those who do believe in him, we have a, a common faith that we share, and it's proclaimed in the words of the Nicene Creed. You'll find that in your bulletin if you'll take that out now. As, as preparation for coming to the Lord's table, it would be good for us to read together the Nicene Creed. Let's do that now. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission.